0: Book three, chapter three, of *The Old Wife's Tale* by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. *The Old Wife's Tale* by Arnold Bennett, Book Three, Sophia. CHAPTER Three, AN AMBITION SATISFIED One. She went to sleep in misery. All the glory of her new life had been eclipsed. But when she woke up a few hours later, in the large, velvety stateliness of the bedroom, for which Gerald was paying so fantastic a price per day, she was in a brighter mood, and very willing to reconsider her verdicts. Her pride induced her to put Gerald in the right and herself in the wrong, for she was too proud to admit that she had married a charming and irresponsible fool. And, indeed, ought she not to put herself in the wrong? Gerald had told her to wait, and she had not waited. He had said that he should return to the restaurant, and he had returned. Why had she not waited? She had not waited because she had behaved like a simpleton. She had been terrified about nothing. Had she not been frequenting restaurants now for a month past? "'Ought not a married woman to be capable of waiting an hour in a restaurant for her lawful husband without looking a ninny? And as for Gerald's behaviour, how could he have acted differently? The other Englishman was obviously a brute, and had sought a quarrel. His contradiction of Gerald's statements was extremely offensive. On being invited by the brute to go outside, what could Gerald do but comply? Not to have complied might have meant a fight in the restaurant, as the brute was certainly drunk.' Compared to the brute, Gerald was not at all drunk, merely a little gay and talkative. Then Gerald's fib about his chin was natural. He simply wished to minimise the fuss and to spare her feelings. It was, in fact, just like Gerald to keep perfect silence as to what had passed between himself and the brute. However, she was convinced that Gerald, so lithe and quick, had given that great brute with his supercilious ways as good as he received, if not better— And if she were a man, and had asked her wife to wait in a restaurant, and the wife had gone home under the escort of another man, she would most assuredly be much more angry than Gerald had been. She was very glad that she had controlled herself, and exercised a meek diplomacy. A quarrel had thus been avoided. Yes, the finish of the evening could not be called a quarrel. After her nursing of his chin, nothing but a slight coolness on his part had persisted she arose silently, and began to dress, full of a determination to treat Gerald as a good wife ought to treat her husband. Gerald did not stir. He was an excellent sleeper—one of those organisms that never want to go to bed, and never want to get up. When her toilet was complete, save for her bodice, there was a knock at the door. She started. "'Gerald!' She approached the bed, and leant her nude bosom over her husband, and put her arms round his neck. This method of being brought back to consciousness did not displease him. The knock was repeated. He gave a grunt. "'Someone's knocking at the door,' she whispered. "'Then why don't you open it?' he said dreamily. "'I'm not dressed, darling.' He looked at her. "'Stick something on your shoulders, girl,' said he. "'What does it matter?' There she was, being a simpleton again, despite her resolution— She obeyed, and cautiously opened the door, standing behind it. A middle-aged, whiskered servant, in a long white apron, announced matters in French, which passed her understanding. But Gerald had heard from the bed, and he replied, "'Bien, monsieur!' The servant departed, with a bow, down the obscure corridor. "'It's Chirac,' Gerald explained, when she had shut the door. "'I was forgetting. I asked him to come and have lunch with us early.' He's waiting in the drawing-room. Just put your bodice on and go and talk to him till I come.' He jumped out of bed, and then, standing in his night-garb, stretched himself and terrifically yawned. "'Me?' Sophia questioned. "'Who else?' said Gerald, with that curious satiric dryness which he would sometimes import into his tone. "'But I can't speak French,' she protested. "'I didn't suppose you could?' "'said Gerald, with an increase of dryness. "'But you know as well as I do "'that he can speak English.' "'Oh, very well, then,' "'she murmured, with agreeable "'alacrity.' "'Evidently Gerald had not yet "'quite recovered from his legitimate "'displeasure of the night. "'He minutely examined his mouth "'in the glass of the Louis-Philippe wardrobe. "'It showed scarcely a trace of battle. "'I say,' he stopped her, "'as, nervous at the prospect before her, "'she was leaving the room.' "'I was thinking of going to Auxerre to-day.' "'Auxerre?' she repeated, wondering under what circumstances she had recently heard that name. Then she remembered. It was the place of execution of the murderer rivaine "'Yes,' he said, "'Chirac has to go. He's on a newspaper now. He was an architect when I knew him. He's got to go, and he thinks himself jolly lucky, so I thought I'd go with him.' The truth was that he had definitely arranged to go. "'Not to, to see the execution?' she stammered. "'Why not? I've always wanted to see an execution, especially with the guillotine. An execution's a public in France. It's quite the proper thing to go to them. But why do you want to see an execution?' "'It just happens that I do want to see an execution. It's a fancy of mine, that's all. I don't know that any reason is necessary,' he said, pouring out water into the diminutive ewer." She was aghast. "'And shall you leave me here alone?' "'Well,' said he, "'I don't see why my being married should prevent me from doing something that I've always wanted to do. Do you?' "'Oh, no!' she eagerly concurred. "'That's all right,' he said. "'You can do exactly as you like. Either stay here, or come with me. If you go to Auxerre, there's no need at all for you to see the execution. It's an interesting old town, cathedral, and so on.' But of course, if you can't bear to be in the same town as a guillotine, I'll go alone. I shall come back tomorrow. It was plain where his wish lay. She stopped the phrases that came to her lips and did her best to dismiss the thoughts which prompted them. Of course I'll go, she said quietly. She hesitated and then went up to the washstand and kissed a part of his cheek that was not soapy. That kiss, which comforted and somehow reassured her, was the expression of a surrender, whose monstrousness she would not admit to herself. In the rich and dusty drawing-room, Chirac and Chirac's exquisite formalities awaited her. Nobody else was there. "Uh, "'My husband?' she began, smiling and blushing. She liked Chirac. It was the first time she had had the opportunity of using that word, to other than a servant. It soothed her, and gave her confidence.' She perceived, after a few moments, that Chirac did genuinely admire her, more, that she inspired him with something that resembled awe. Speaking very slowly and distinctly, she said that she should travel with her husband to Auxerre, as he saw no objection to that course, implying that if he saw no objection, she was perfectly satisfied. Chirac was concurrence itself. In five minutes it seemed to be the most natural and proper thing in the world that, on her honeymoon— She should soon be going with her husband to a particular town, because a notorious murderer was about to be decapitated there in public. "'My husband has always wanted to see an execution,' she said later. "'It would be a pity to—' "'As psychological experience,' replied Chirac, pronouncing the P of the adjective, "'it would be very interessant to observe one's self in such circumstances.' He smiled enthusiastically. She thought how strange even nice Frenchmen were. Imagine going to an execution in order to observe yourself. Two. What continually impressed sophia as strange in the behaviour not only of Gerald but of Chirac and other people with whom she came into contact was its quality of casualness. She had all her life been accustomed to see enterprises, even minor ones, well pondered, and then carefully schemed beforehand. In St. Luke's Square there was always, in every head, a sort of time-table of existence, prepared at least one week in advance. But in Gerald's world nothing was pre-arranged. Elaborate affairs were decided in a moment, and undertaken with extraordinary lightness. Thus the excursion to Auxerre. During lunch scarcely a word was said as to it. The conversation, in English, for Sophia's advantage, turning, as usual under such circumstances, upon the difficulty of languages and the differences between countries. Nobody would have guessed that any member of the party had any preoccupation whatever for the rest of the day. The meal was delightful to Sophia. Not merely did she find Chirac comfortably kind and sincere, but Gerald was restored to the perfection of his charm and his good humour. Then, suddenly, in the midst of coffee, the question of trains loomed up like a swift crisis. In five minutes Chirac had departed. Whether to his office or his home, Sophia did not understand, and within a quarter of an hour she and Gerald were driving rapidly to the Gare de Lyon, Gerald stuffing into his pocket a large envelope full of papers which he had received by registered post. They caught the train by about a minute, and Chirac by a few seconds yet neither he nor Gerald seemed to envisage the risk of inconvenience and annoyance which they had incurred and escaped. Chirac chattered through the window with another journalist in the next compartment. When she had leisure to examine him, Sophia saw that he must have called at his home to put on old clothes. Everybody, except herself and Gerald, seemed to travel in his oldest clothes. The train was hot, noisy, and dusty, but one after another all three of them fell asleep and slept heavily, calmly, like healthy and exhausted young animals. Nothing could disturb them for more than a moment. To Sophia it appeared to be by simple chance that Chirac aroused himself and them at La Roche, and sleepily seized her valise, and got them all out on the platform, where they yawned and smiled, full of the deep, half-realised satisfaction of repose. They drank nectar from a wheeled buffet, "'drank it eagerly in thirsty gulps, and sighed with pleasure and relief, "'and Gerald threw down a coin, refusing change with a lord's gesture. "'The local train to Auxerre was full, and with a varied and sinister cargo. "'At length they were in the zone of the waiting guillotine. "'The rumour ran that the executioner was on the train. "'No one had seen him, no one was sure of recognising him, "'but everyone hugged the belief that he was on the train.' Although the sun was sinking, the heat seemed not to abate. Attitudes grew more limp, more abandoned. Soot and prickly dust flew in unceasingly at the open windows. The train stopped at Bonnard, Chemilly, and Moniteau, each time before a waiting crowd that invaded it. And at last, in the great station at Auxerre, it poured out an incredible mass of befouled humanity that spread over everything like an inundation. Sophia was frightened, Gerald left the initiative to Chirac, and Chirac took her arm and led her forward, looking behind him to see that Gerald followed with the Valise. Frenzy seemed to reign in Auxerre. The driver of a cab demanded ten francs for transporting them to the hotel de Lepe. Bah scornfully exclaimed Chirac, in his quality of experienced Parisian who is not to be exploited by heavy witted provincials but the driver of the next cab demanded twelve francs. "'Jump in,' said Gerald to Sophia. Chirac lifted his eyebrows. At the same moment a tall, stout man with the hard face of a flourishing scoundrel, and a young, pallid girl on his arm, pushed aside both Gerald and Chirac, and got into the cab with his companion. Chirac protested, telling him that the cab was already engaged. The usurper scowled and swore, and the young girl laughed boldly. Sophia, shrinking, expected her escort to execute justice, heroic and final, but she was disappointed. "'Brute!' murmured Chirac, and shrugged his shoulders as the carriage drove off, leaving them foolish on the curb. By this time all the other cabs had been seized. They walked to the Hotel de l'Epe, jostled by the crowd, Sophia and Chirac in front, and Gerald following with the valise, whose weight caused him to lean over to his right and his left arm to rise.' The avenue was long, straight, and misty with a floating dust. Sophia had a vivid sense of the romantic. They saw towers and spires, and Chirac talked to her slowly and carefully of the cathedral and the famous churches. He said that the stained glass was marvellous, and with much care he catalogued for her all the things she must visit. They crossed a river. She felt as though she was stepping into the Middle Age. At intervals, Gerald changed the valise from hand to hand. Obstinately, he would not let Chirac touch it. They struggled upwards through narrow, curving streets. "'Voilà!' said Chirac. They were in front of the Hotel de Leppe. Across the street was a café, crammed with people. Several carriages stood in front. The Hotel de Leppe had a reassuring air of mellow respectability, such as Chirac had claimed for it. He had suggested this hotel for Madame Scales because it was not near the place of execution. Gerald had said, "'Of course, of course.' Chirac, who did not mean to go to bed, required no room for himself. The Hotel de L'Epe had one room to offer, at the price of twenty-five francs. Gerald revolted at the attempted imposition a nice thing he grumbled that ordinary travellers can't get a decent room at a decent price just because someone's going to be guillotined tomorrow we'll try elsewhere his features expressed disgust but sophia fancied that he was secretly pleased they swaggered out of the busy stir of the hotel as those must who having declined to be swindled wished to preserve their importance in the face of the world in the street a cabman solicited them and filled them with hope by saying that he knew of a hotel that might suit them, and would drive them there for five francs. He furiously lashed his horse. The mere fact of being in a swiftly moving carriage, which wayfarers had to avoid nimbly, maintained their spirits. They had a near glimpse of the cathedral. The cab halted, with a bump, in a small square, in front of a repellent building, which bore the sign, Hôtel de Vézillet. The horse was bleeding gerald instructed sophia to remain where she was and he and chirac went up four stone steps into the hotel sophia stared up by loose crowds that were promenading gazed about her and saw that all the windows of the square were open and most of them occupied by people who laughed and chattered then there was a shout gerald's voice he had appeared at a window on the second floor of the hotel with chirac and a very fat woman Chirac saluted, and Gerald laughed carelessly and nodded. "'It's all right,' said Gerald, having descended. "'How much do they ask?' Sophia inquired indiscreetly. Gerald hesitated and looked self-conscious. thirty five 5 francs,' he said, "'but I've had enough of driving it about. It seems we're lucky to get it even at that.' And Chirac shrugged his shoulders, as if to indicate that the situation and the price ought to be accepted philosophically." Gerald gave the driver five francs. He examined the piece, and demanded a pourboire. "'Oh, damn!' said Gerald, and because he had no smaller change, parted with another two francs. "'Is anyone coming out for this damn valise?' Gerald demanded, like a tyrant whose wrath would presently fall if the populace did not instantly set about minding their P's and Q's. But nobody emerged, and he was compelled to carry the bag himself." The hotel was dark and malodorous, and every room seemed to be crowded with giggling groups of drinkers. We can't both sleep in this bed, surely, said Sophia, when, Chirac having remained downstairs, she faced Gerald in a small, mean bedroom. You don't suppose I shall go to bed, do you? said Gerald rather brusquely. It's for you. We're going to eat now. Look sharp. Three. It was night. She lay in the narrow, crimson-draped bed. The heavy crimson curtains had been drawn across the dirty lace curtains of the window, but the lights of the little square faintly penetrated through chinks into the room. The sounds of the square also penetrated, extraordinarily loud and clear, for the unabated heat had compelled her to leave the window open. She could not sleep. Exhausted though she was, there was no hope of her being able to sleep. Once again she was profoundly depressed. She remembered the dinner with horror, the long, crowded table with semicircular ends in the oppressive and reeking dining-room, lighted by oil-lamps. There must have been at least forty people at that table. Most of them ate disgustingly, as noisily as pigs, with the end of large, coarse napkins tucked in at their necks. All the service was done by the fat woman whom she had seen at the window with Gerald, and a young girl— whose demeanour was candidly brazen. Both these creatures were slatterns. Everything was dirty, but the food was good. Chirac and Gerald were agreed that the food was good, as well as the wine. Remarquable, Chirac had said, of the wine. Sophia, however, could neither eat nor drink with relish. She was afraid. The company shocked her by its gestures alone. It was very heterogeneous in appearance, some of the diners being well-dressed, approaching elegance and others shabby. But all the faces, to the youngest, were brutalised, corrupt, and shameless. The juxtaposition of old men and young women was odious to her, especially when those pairs kissed, as they did frequently towards the end of the meal. Happily, she was placed between Chirac and Gerald. That situation seemed to shelter her even from the conversation— She would have comprehended nothing of the conversation had it not been for the presence of a middle-aged Englishman who sat at the opposite end of the table with a youngish, stylish Frenchwoman whom she had seen at Sylvain's on the previous night. The Englishman was evidently under a promise to teach English to the Frenchwoman. He kept translating for her into English, slowly and distinctly, and she would repeat the phrases after him, with strange contortions of the mouth. Thus Sophia gathered that the talk was exclusively about assassinations, executions, criminals, and executioners. Some of the people there made a practice of attending every execution. They were fountains of interesting gossip, and the lions of the meal. There was a woman who could recall the dying words of all the victims of justice for twenty years past. The table roared with hysteric laughter at one of this woman's anecdotes. Sophia learnt that she had related how a criminal had said to the priest, who was good-naturedly trying to screen the sight of the guillotine from him with his body, "'Stand away now, parson. Haven't I paid to see it?' Such was the Englishman's rendering. The wages of the executioners and their assistants were discussed, and differences of opinion led to ferocious arguments. A young and dandiacal fellow, told as a fact which he was ready to vouch for with a pistol, how Cora Pearl, the renowned English courtesan, had, through her influence over a prefect of police, succeeded in visiting a criminal alone in his cell during the night preceding his execution, and had only quitted him an hour before the final summons. The tale won the honours of the dinner. It was regarded as truly impressive, and inevitably it led to the general inquiry. What could the highest personages in the Empire see to admire in that red-haired English woman?— and of course Rivain himself, the handsome homicide, the centre and hero of the fate, was never long out of the conversation. Several of the diners had seen him, one or two knew him, and could give amazing details of his prowess as a man of pleasure. Despite his crime he seemed to be the object of sincere idolatry. It was said positively that a niece of his victim had been promised a front place at the execution— Apropos of this, Sophia gathered, to her intense astonishment and alarm, that the prison was close by, and that the execution would take place at the corner of the square itself in which the hotel was situated. Gerald must have known he had hidden it from her. She regarded him sideways with distrust. As the dinner finished— Gerald's pose of a calm, disinterested, scientific observer of humanity gradually broke down. He could not maintain it in front of the increasing license of the scene round the table. He was, at length, somewhat ashamed of having exposed his wife to the view of such an orgy. His restless glance carefully avoided both Sophia and Chirac. The latter, whose unaffected simplicity of interest in the affair had more than anything helped to keep Sophia in countenance, observed the change in Gerald, and Sophia's excessive discomfort, and suggested that they should leave the table without waiting for the coffee. Gerald agreed quickly. Thus had Sophia been released from the horror of the dinner. She did not understand how a man so thoughtful and kindly as Chirac—he had bidden her good night with the most distinguished courtesy—could tolerate, much less pleasurably savour, the gluttonous, drunken, and salacious debauchery of the Hotel de Veselet, But his theory was, so far as she could judge from his imperfect English, that whatever existed might be admitted and examined by serious persons interested in the study of human nature. His face seemed to say, "'Why not?' His face seemed to say to Gerald and to herself, "'If this incommodes you, what did you come for?' Gerald had left her at the bedroom door with a self-conscious nod. She had partly undressed and lain down and instantly the hotel had transformed itself into a kind of sounding-box. It was as if, beneath and within all the noises of the square, every movement of the hotel reached her ears through cardboard walls. Distant shoutings and laughter below, rattlings of crockery below, stampings up and down stairs, stealthy creepings up and down stairs, brusque calls, fragments of song, whisperings, long sighs suddenly stifled mysterious groans as of torture broken by a giggle, quarrels and bickering. She was spared nothing in the strangely resonant darkness. Then there came out of the little square a great uproar and commotion, with shrieks, and under the shrieks a confused din. In vain she pressed her face into the pillow, and listened to the irregular prodigious noise of her eyelashes as they scraped the rough linen the thought had somehow introduced itself into her head that she must arise and go to the window, and see all that was to be seen. She resisted. She said to herself that the idea was absurd, that she did not wish to go to the window. Nevertheless, while arguing with herself, she well knew that resistance to the thought was useless, and that ultimately her legs would obey its command." When ultimately she yielded to the fascination and went to the window and pulled aside one of the curtains, she had a feeling of relief. The cool grey beginnings of dawn were in the sky, and every detail of the square was visible. Without exception, all the windows were wide open and filled with sightseers. In the background of many windows were burning candles or lamps that the far distant approach of the sun was already killing. In front of these, on the frontier of two mingling lights, the attentive figures of the watchers were curiously silhouetted. On the red-tiled roofs, too, was a squatted population. Below, a troop of gendarmes, mounted on caracoling horses stretched in line across the square, was gradually sweeping the entire square of a packed, gesticulating, cursing crowd. The operation of this immense besom was very slow. As the spaces of the square were cleared they began to be dotted by privileged persons—journalists, or law-officers, or their friends—who walked to and fro in conscious pride. Among them Sophia descried Gerald and Chirac, strolling arm-in-arm, and talking to two elaborately clad girls, who were also arm-in-arm. Then she saw a red reflection coming from one of the side-streets, of which she had a vista. It was the swinging lantern of a waggon, drawn by a gaunt grey horse." The vehicle stopped at the end of the square from which the besom had started, and it was immediately surrounded by the privileged, who, however, were soon persuaded to stand away. The crowd, amassed now at the principal inlets of the square, gave a formidable cry, and burst into the refrain, La voilà, Nicolas! Ah! 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 The clamour became furious, as a group of workmen in blue blouses drew piece by piece all the components of the guillotine from the waggon, and laid them carefully on the ground, under the superintendence of a man in a black frock-coat and a silk hat with broad, flat brims, a little fussy man of nervous gestures. And presently the red columns had risen upright from the ground, and were joined at the top by an acrobatic climber. As each part was bolted and screwed to the growing machine, the man in the high hat carefully tested it. In a short time that seemed very long, the guillotine was finished, save for the triangular steel blade which lay shining on the ground, a sinusure. The executioner pointed to it, and two men picked it up, and slipped it into its groove, and hoisted it to the summit of the machine. The executioner peered at it interminably, amid a universal silence. Then he actuated the mechanism, and the mass of metal fell, with a muffled reverberating thud. There were a few faint shrieks, blended together, and then an overpowering racket of cheers, shouts, hootings, and fragments of song. The blade was again lifted, instantly reproducing silence, and again it fell, liberating a new bedlam. The executioner made a movement of satisfaction. Many women at the windows clapped enthusiastically, and the gendarmes had to fight brutally against the fierce pressure of the crowd. The workmen doffed their blouses and put on coats— and Sophia was disturbed to see them coming in single file towards the hotel, followed by the executioner in the silk hat. 4. There was a tremendous opening of doors in the Hotel de Veselay, and much whispering on thresholds, as the executioner and his band entered solemnly. Sophia heard them tramp upstairs. They seemed to hesitate, and then apparently went into a room on the same landing as hers. A door banged but Sophia could hear the regular sound of new voices talking, and then the rattling of glasses on a tray. The conversation which came to her from the windows of the hotel now showed a great increase of excitement. She could not see the people at these neighbouring windows without showing her own head, and this she would not do. The boom of a heavy bell striking the hour vibrated over the roofs of the square. She supposed that it might be the cathedral clock, In a corner of the square she saw Gerald talking vivaciously alone with one of the two girls who had been together. She wondered vaguely how such a girl had been brought up, and what her parents thought, or knew, and she was conscious of an intense pride in herself, of a measureless, haughty feeling of superiority. Her eye caught the guillotine again, and was held by it, Guarded by gendarmes, that tall and simple object did most menacingly dominate the square with its crude red columns. Tools and a large open box lay on the ground beside it. The enfeebled horse in the wagon had an air of dozing on his twisted legs. Then the first rays of the sun shot lengthwise across the square at the level of the chimneys, and Sophia noticed that nearly all the lamps and candles had been extinguished. Many people at the windows were yawning. They laughed foolishly after they had yawned. Some were eating and drinking. Some were shouting conversations from one house to another. The mounted gendarmes were still pressing back the feverish crowds that growled at all the inlets to the square. She saw Chirac walking to and fro alone. But she could not find Gerald. He would not have left the square. Perhaps he had returned to the hotel, and would come up to see if she was comfortable, or if she needed anything. Guiltily she sprang back into bed. When last she had surveyed the room, it had been dark. Now it was bright, and every detail stood clear. Yet she had the sensation of having been at the window only a few minutes. She waited, but Gerald did not come. She could hear chiefly the steady hum of the voices of the executioner and his aides. She reflected that the room in which they were must be at the back. The other sounds in the hotel grew less noticeable. Then— After an age she heard a door open, and a low voice say something commandingly in French, and then a, "'Oui, monsieur,' and a general descent of the stairs. The executioner and his aides were leaving. "'You!' cried a drunken English voice from an upper floor. It was the middle-aged Englishman translating what the executioner had said. "'You, you will take the head.' Then a rough laugh— and the repeating voice of the Englishman's girl, still pursuing her studies in English. "'You will take the aid, yes, sir?' And another laugh. At length, quiet reigned in the hotel. Sophia said to herself, "'I won't stir from this bed till it's all over and Gerald comes back.' She dozed under the sheet, and was awakened by a tremendous shrieking, growling, and yelling— a phenomenon of human bestiality that far surpassed Sophia's narrow experiences, shut up though she was in a room, perfectly secure. The mad fury of that crowd, balked at the inlets to the square, thrilled and intimidated her. It sounded as if they would be capable of tearing the very horses to pieces. "'I must stay where I am,' she murmured. And even while saying it, she rose and went to the window again and peeped out. The torture involved was extreme, but she had not sufficient force within her to resist the fascination. She stared greedily into the bright square. The first thing she saw was Gerald coming out of a house opposite, followed after a few seconds by the girl with whom he had previously been talking. Gerald glanced hastily up at the façade of the hotel, and then approached as near as he could to the red columns, in front of which were now drawn a line of gendarmes with naked swords." a second and larger waggon, with two horses, waited by the side of the other one. The racket beyond the square continued and even grew louder, but the couple of hundred persons within the cordons and all the inhabitants of the windows, drunk and sober, gazed in a fixed and sinister enchantment at the region of the guillotine, as Sophia gazed. "'I cannot stand this,' she told herself in horror. But she could not move. She could not move even her eyes.' At intervals the crowd would burst out in a violent staccato. Le voilà! Nicolas! Ah! 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 ah. And the final ah was devilish. Then a gigantic, passionate roar, the culmination of the mob's fierce savagery, crashed against the skies. The line of maddened horses swerved and reared, and seemed to fall on the furious multitude while the statue-like gendarmes rocked over them. It was a last effort to break the cordon, and it failed. From the little street at the rear of the guillotine appeared a priest, walking backwards, and holding a crucifix high in his right hand. And behind him came the handsome hero, his body all crossed with cords, between two warders, who pressed against him and supported him on either side. He was certainly very young. He lifted his chin gallantly, but his face was incredibly white." Sophia discerned that the priest was trying to hide the sight of the guillotine from the prisoner with his body, just as in the story which he had heard at dinner. Except the voice of the priest, indistinctly rising and falling in the prayer for the dying, there was no sound in the square or its environs. The windows were now occupied by groups turned to stone with distended eyes fixed on the little procession. Sophia had a tightening of the throat, and the hand trembled by which she held the curtain. The central figure did not seem to her to be alive, but rather a doll. A marionette wound up to imitate the action of a tragedy. She saw the priest offer the crucifix to the mouth of the marionette, which, with a clumsy, unhuman shoving of its corded shoulders, butted the thing away, and as the procession turned and stopped, she could plainly see that the marionette's nape and shoulders were bare, his shirt having been slit. It was horrible. "'Why do I stay here?' she asked herself hysterically, but she did not stir. The victim had disappeared now in the midst of a group of men. Then she perceived him prone under the red column, between the grooves. The silence was now broken only by the tinkling of the horse's bits in the corner of the square." The line of gendarmes in front of the scaffold held their swords tightly and looked over their noses, ignoring the privileged groups that peered almost between their shoulders. And Sophia waited, horror-struck. She saw nothing but the gleaming triangle of metal that was suspended high above the prone, attendant victim. She felt like a lost soul, torn too soon from the shelter, and exposed for ever to the worst hazards of destiny. Why was she in this strange, incomprehensible town, foreign and inimical to her, watching with agonised glance this cruel, obscene spectacle? Her sensibilities were all a bleeding mass of wounds. Why? Only yesterday, and she had been an innocent, timid creature in Bursley, in Axe, a foolish creature who deemed the concealment of letters a supreme excitement. Either that day or this day was not real." Why was she imprisoned alone in that odious, indescribably odious hotel, with no one to soothe and comfort her, and carry her away? The distant bell boomed once. Then a monosyllabic voice sounded, sharp, low, nervous. She recognized the voice of the executioner, whose name she had heard, but could not remember. There was a clicking noise. She shrank down to the floor in terror and loathing, and hid her face and shuddered shriek after shriek from various windows rang on her ears in a fusillade and then the mad yell of the penned crowd which like herself had not seen but had heard extinguished all other noise justice was done the great ambition of gerald's life was at last satisfied later amid the stir of the hotel there came a knock at her door impatient and nervous Forgetting in her tribulation that she was without her bodice, she got up from the floor in a kind of miserable dream, and opened. Chirac stood on the landing, and he had Gerald by the arm. Chirac looked worn out, curiously fragile and pathetic. But Gerald was the very image of death. The attainment of his ambition had utterly destroyed his equilibrium. His curiosity had proved itself stronger than his stomach. Sophia would have pitied him, had she in that moment been capable of pity. Gerald staggered past her into the room, and sang with a groan on to the bed. Not long since he had been proudly conversing with impudent women. Now, in a swift collapse, he was as flaccid as a sick hound, and as disgusting as an aged drunkard. "'He is some little souffrant,' said Chirac weakly. Sophia perceived in Chirac's tone the assumption that, of course, her present duty was to devote herself to the task of restoring her shamed husband to his manly pride. "'And what about me?' she thought bitterly. The fat woman ascended the stairs like a tottering blanc and began to gabble to Sophia, who understood nothing whatever. "'She wants sixty francs,' Chirac said." and in answer to Sophia's startled question, he explained that Gerald had agreed to pay a hundred francs for the room, which was the landlady's own, fifty francs in advance, and the fifty after the execution. The other ten was for the dinner. The landlady, distrusting the whole of her clientele, was collecting her accounts instantly on the completion of the spectacle. Sophia made no remark as to Gerald's lie to her. Indeed, Chirac had heard it. She knew Gerald for a glib liar to others, but she was naively surprised when he practised upon herself. "'Gerald, do you hear?' she said coldly. The amateur of severed heads only groaned. With a moment of irritation she went to him, and felt in his pockets for his purse. He acquiesced, still groaning. Chirac helped her to choose and count the coins. The fat woman, appeased, pursued her way." "'Good-bye, madame,' said Chirac, with his customary courtliness, transforming the landing of the hideous hotel into some imperial antechamber. "'Are you going away?' she asked, in surprise. Her distress was so obvious that it tremendously flattered him. He would have stayed if he could, but he had to return to Paris to write and deliver his article. "'Tomorrow, I hope,' he murmured sympathetically, kissing her hand, The gesture atoned somewhat for the sordidness of her situation, and even corrected the faults of her attire. Always afterwards it seemed to her that Chirac was an old and intimate friend. He had successfully passed through the ordeal of seeing the wrong side of the stuff of her life. She shut the door on him with a lingering glance, and reconciled herself to her predicament. Gerald slept. Just as he was, he slept heavily. This was what he had brought her to then—the horrors of the night, of the dawn, and of the morning, ineffable suffering and humiliation, anguish and torture that could never be forgotten. And after a fatuous vigil of unguessed licence he had tottered back, an offensive beast, to sleep the day away in that filthy chamber. He did not possess even enough spirit to play the role of roisterer to the end, and she was bound to him, far, far from any other human aid— cut off irrevocably by her pride from those who perhaps would have protected her from his dangerous folly. The deep conviction henceforward formed a permanent part of her general consciousness, that he was simply an irresponsible and thoughtless fool. He was without sense. Such was her brilliant and godlike husband, the man who had given her the right to call herself a married woman. He was a fool. With all her ignorance of the world— She could see that nobody but an arrant imbecile could have brought her to the present pass. Her native sagacity revolted. Gusts of feeling came over her, in which she could have thrashed him into the realisation of his responsibilities. Sticking out of the breast-pocket of his soiled coat was the packet which he had received on the previous day. If he had not already lost it, he could only thank his luck. She took it. There were English banknotes in it for two hundred pounds, a letter from a banker, and other papers. With precautions against noise, she tore the envelope and the letters and papers into small pieces, and then looked about for a place to hide them. A cupboard suggested itself. She got on a chair and pushed the fragments out of sight on the topmost shelf, where they may well be to this day. She finished dressing, and then sewed the notes into the lining of her skirt— She had no silly, delicate notions about stealing. She obscurely felt that, in the care of a man like Gerald, she might find herself in the most monstrous, the most impossible dilemmas. Those notes, safe and secret in her skirt, gave her confidence, reassured her against the perils of the future, and endowed her with independence. The act was characteristic of her enterprise and of her fundamental prudence. It approached the heroic— and her conscience hotly defended its righteousness. She decided that when he discovered his loss, she would merely deny all knowledge of the envelope, for he had not spoken a word to her about it. He never mentioned the details of money. He had a fortune. However, the necessity for this untruth did not occur. He made no reference whatever to his loss. The fact was, he thought he had been careless enough to let the envelope be filched from him during the excesses of the night, All day till evening, Sophia sat on a dirty chair without food while Gerald slept. She kept repeating to herself in amazed resentment, "'A hundred francs for this room! A hundred francs! And he hadn't the pluck to tell me!' She could not have expressed her contempt. Long before sheer ennui forced her to look out of the window again, every sign of justice had been removed from the square— Nothing whatever remained in the heavy, august sunshine save gathered heaps of filth where the horses had reared and caracoled. End of Book Three, Chapter Three